the book was addressed to returned exiles as an encouragement to um, continue their work on rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple of God. It was kind of starting to flag a little bit, and so Zechariah was encouraging them to persist in that. But the second part of the book that we're going to be um, looking at a small part of today, second part of the book, it was, was written at some point later and is comprised of, of well, what Zechariah describes as oracles, their, their visions, their visions of the future. Now, um, Zechariah uh, had returned. He, he was born in captivity in Babylon, um, but he was brought back to Palestine um, with some other exiles when they returned uh, he, um, under Zerubbabel, who was the governor at the time, and Joshua was the high priest. And he came back with his grandfather, but he uh, became a priest, and his name means God remembers. And God's remembering Israel's suffering, God's remembering the covenant that he made with them is a significant theme throughout this book. Um, today we're just going to look at the, the first part of the first oracle, and we're going to read um, Zechariah chapter 9. So it's um, probably about 75% of the way through your Bible. It's the second last book of the Old Testament, if that's helpful for you in finding it. Um, yeah, I'm going to read uh, chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. And she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and will become leaders in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will ex his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. 
Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. And they will sparkle in the land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Thus far, the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, let's just take a, 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 a closer look at this, this passage here for a moment. Um, then I'm going to share with you just a, a couple of things that kind of jumped out at me from the passage, and then um, I'll open it up, too, if you, if you all have any questions. Um, this section is, is prefaced with the title, An Oracle, and it then goes on to present a picture of God's judgment in the form of a, a conquering ruler moving from north to south and conquering the traditional enemies of Israel. Now, this occurs even as his people are hurting and oppressed, even as some of them were were still in exile. Now, even though the Bible doesn't actually describe all of this in terms of the the fulfillment of of this, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, um, those of you maybe who who are hip to the history of the ancient Near East would know that the immediate fulfillment of, this, of the first part of this prophecy came in the form of Alexander the Great. Um, after Alexander had gotten you know, through with the Persians and um, presumably before having wept for want of worlds to conquer, he lost no time in bringing his armies like thundering down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean headed for Egypt. However, um, oddly, and, and some people would say uh, miraculously, there are a number of sort of extra-biblical legends about how this took place. He decided not to destroy Jerusalem, and he left that area alone. And many people would say that that was a sign, this was a, a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in, in verse 8, wherein he says, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. God did indeed spare Jerusalem at that time. And the Jews um, took great comfort in what they perceived to be a promise from God that Jerusalem would be forever safe from foreign forces. Um, Not my main point at all here this morning, but, but can you imagine, though, the disappointment and the feelings of disillusionment when a couple of centuries later, Rome invaded and conquered Jerusalem? Now, 
you know, with the perspective of history, it's easy for us to see that that wasn't exactly what God meant. Um, we know that, that, that part of the fulfillment uh, occurred when Jesus came, when Jesus was born, when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, and, and the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy will come when, when Jesus returns and establishes the new city of Jerusalem. Now, with the perspective of time, we can see these things now, but can you imagine the, the deep crestfallenness, the doubt they must have experienced, the utter, the utter devastation that would have been felt by the people of God the first time they saw Roman troops marching through the streets of the city? Um, I, I don't know, but I guess for me, it just feels like a reminder to me to make sure that my trust is in God himself and, and not my understanding of God, that my trust is in, in God's word rather than my own understanding of God's word. Um, yeah, for whatever it's worth at any rate. Um, moving on, though, in, in verses 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the king figure described here is clearly not Alexander. I'm this king is almost the antithesis of Alexander, it would seem. Alexander was, he was warlike, he was aggressive, he was arrogant. The, the king described here comes to his people. He comes peacefully. He has come to vindicate his people. <coughs> Excuse me. But when he comes to Jerusalem, to his vindicated people, he comes in peace. The king is righteous, it says, and therefore saving, therefore having salvation. The king is, is gentle and therefore peaceful. And what's more, when the king comes, he removes even from the land of his own people the chariots, the war horses, the bows. He systematically removes from the land the weapons of warfare. Now, why would a king, why would a just king do this? Surely he's not trying to leave all of his subjects vulnerable and defenseless. Rather, he does this because the war is already fought and won. Also, the king is protecting the inhabitants of the city from threats that come from within the city, too. Do you see what's going on here? Not only does the arrival of the king mean that the war is over and that the enemies from outside are destroyed, but that all threats from within the city are taken away as well. Threats from without are eliminated. Threats from within are eliminated. Do you need a savior? Do you think our world needs a savior? What's more, um, the victory of the king signals not only peace for his people, but for all nations, it says. The particular Hebrew word that's rendered peace here in this passage refers not just to an absence of war, 
but it rather encompasses the, the idea of, of, a, of a general rightness, of, a, of an orderedness, a, a, a wellness, a sense that things are as they ought to be. The, the victory of the king ushers in a, a new era of set rightness. Now, even though it, it, it doesn't always feel like there's, there's a set rightness to our world as followers of Jesus, um, we are assured by Scripture that things are set right. And I think some of it has to do with the manner in which we, we view orderedness. Um, the, the word peace used here has to do with the idea of things being as they ought to be. I mean, sometimes when we, when we think of going from A to B, we think of, okay, let's, let's go in a straight line. But if you asked a butterfly to go from A to B, it would do this. And then eventually arrive there. It doesn't seem necessarily like it's the most efficient way to us, but it's as it ought to be. It's, it's what butterflies do. It's, it's how they are. There is a shalom. There is a rightness even about, the, even about the, the odd path that sometimes is taken to get to that rightness. So here again, again, we need to be careful to be trusting in God and not just trusting in our ideas about God. And then verse 11 it says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I will announce, I, I, sorry, even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. The promise in this prophecy is that those who are held in captivity will be rescued. Most scholars agree that Zechariah here, in talking about prisoners and exiles in waterless pit, in waterless pits, is, is evoking um, in the minds of his listeners the, the image of Joseph. Not, um, not, I mean, I know we're coming up to Christmas, but not Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, Technicolor Dreamcoat guy, um, Old Testament. Um, quickly, for the benefit of those of you who might be unfamiliar with the story, um, he was a guy who who through no fault of his own, through mostly no fault of his own, um, found himself betrayed by his brothers, um, thrown into a waterless pit, sold into slavery, shipped off to a foreign land, Egypt, um, away from his home. And although these were very difficult times for Joseph, through a, a divinely ordained succession of events, um, Joseph rose from that waterless pit into a position of prominence in Egypt. And although the Israelites would eventually become slaves there, that whole situation um, would culminate in one of the, the sort of seminal defining events in the history of the nation of Israel. God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And you can imagine... To the, to the Israelite listener hearing this prophecy, that that would be encouraging for a people who were, who were still in exile. God was going to rescue and restore the captives. 
And why does all this happen? It happens because of the faithfulness of God to his covenant. It it talks about the blood of the covenant in, in, in this passage. And to the Israelites at that time, that would have been a clear reference again to, to the, the Passover lamb, another reference to God's mighty and miraculous act of having freed his people from Egypt. For us today, it's easy for us to see that as a reference to the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sin, redeeming us to God. It's about the blood of his covenant. That's why he does it. It is in, it's because of his faithfulness to his covenant. It's in no way contingent upon my worthiness, upon some kind of outstanding performance on my part. So if, if I'm lost, if, if you are lost, if I am lost, exiled, if, if you are stuck in a waterless pit, our deliverance is sure. It is a certainty. It is an absolute lock because it is contingent upon, only upon, the faithfulness of the character of God whose name is faithful and true. And then in verse 13, it says, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. (coughs) Zechariah is saying here that it would seem that not only are the captives freed, not only are they freed, but that they are, they are, they are restored, they are freed, the, the freed, restored people of God then get to play a significant role in God's defeat of the enemy, and, and, the, and, and a, they get to play a significant role in the establishment of his new and better kingdom. Wow. How, like, how, do, how does that happen? The prophet refers to Ephraim and Judah. Um, now, it may be that I'm, I'm reading into this a little bit too much, but um, Ephraim and Judah, um, Ephraim and Jerusalem, really, were, were the main power blocks, respectively, for the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Now, now these two um, kingdoms of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom, though they were both God's people, they had, throughout much of Israel's history, had a you know, an uneasy relationship, to say the least. Uh, eventually, the northern kingdom would, succeed, would secede from the southern kingdom, and there would be a, a you know, war off and on between the two kingdoms, um, at least until bigger threats like the Assyrians and Babylonians came on the scene. But suffice to say, they, they didn't see eye to eye on most things, and they had little in common except that they were God's people. Well, when, when Zechariah says that God will use these two kingdoms as a bow and arrow in cooperation with each other to defeat foes and to rescue more captives, to bring about his will on earth, Zechariah says that that is what will happen. How does this happen? Not by taking up arms, not by superior weaponry or tactics but rather by simply allowing themselves, disparate as they are, to be used of God and, for his sake, choosing to practice radical unity 
not, not by radical conformity, not that we deny our differences and pretend that we agree on everything. Indeed, it may be that, like a bow and arrow, it's the differences in between us that make us effective. You can't do anything with two bows. I couldn't do anything with two bows or two arrows. It's the differences between the two that make it actually more effective. It's not radical conformity. It's not, it's not denying our differences. No, it's, it's radical unity, surrendering ourselves to the hands of the one who will, uh, who, who will use us for his purposes. We get to be a part of that as freed captives. And then the rest of the, of the chapter as read goes on to talk about the glory of God's people and, and God's victory. Um, so in, in, indulge me, if you will, and, and allow me to point out just a couple of, of very simple things that stood out to me as I studied and ruminated preparatory to talking to you about this passage today. Um, not at all easy, mind you, but, but really quite simple, like uncomplicated. Firstly, there it is at the back of verse 7, the back end of verse 7. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. This is a reference to those who are under enemy rule. This is, this is after um, the king has come and conquered. What's clear here is that the, this king, this savior, this coming Messiah, even as he conquers enemy lands, his object is not to destroy people, but rather his object is to conquer the powers that rule over them. As for the people themselves, they were not to be destroyed or killed outright, um, as in a genocide, which was fairly common at that time. Nor were they to be subjugated or enslaved, which was also very common in that area at that time. Nor were they treat, to be treated as, as second-class citizens, um, you know, in, in, in any way in the, new, in the newly established kingdom of the king. But by contrast, the former subjects of the conquered powers here, it says, are to be welcomed into the people of God and even honored. Now, perhaps we shouldn't have to be reminded of this, but it seems like we do and often need to be reminded of this. People who do not share our values as God's people, people who are or, or even just seem to be antagonistic toward us or even to our faith, those people are not the enemy. Can we just remind ourselves of that? They are not foes to be defeated. They are not dragons to be vanquished. They're not opponents to be bested in debate. Rather, if we, if we, if, if I want to be working with Christ and not against him, then my goal, my role, my posture before them, however opposed to me and aggressive they might seem, is to welcome people, even as Christ is defeating the power of the enemy. My job is to welcome that person who seems antagonistic towards me, 
even as Christ is defeating the power of the enemy for our mutual benefit. Remember, I said it was simple, not easy. Um, actually, it might be worthwhile just to take a moment, just to, to pause, even sitting right here, and, and think about, I'm just going to give you a, like a minute of quiet, just to think about what it mean, might mean to work alongside Christ, um, particularly in this Advent season, to work alongside him in this way. Um, are there people in our lives, inside or outside the church, that we need to be deliberate about welcoming and about honoring. Let's just take a, I'm just going to stop talking. Secondly, um, I want to remind us that the coming of the king, even if, it doesn't, even if it does create for us additional challenges, the coming of the king is good news. It is, it's, it's more than good news. It is, it is it's incredibly, exceptionally, exceedingly good news. Verse 9, verse 9 says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The coming of the king, whether we're talking about, you know, 2,000 years ago to an unwed teenager in a backward town, um, even, even though that would, even that, an event that would really cause the skies to open up with angel choirs. Whether we're talking about that or whether we're talking about these days now as we approach the Christmas season or whether we're talking about his coming in glory uh, when he returns and in return, returning makes all things well. The coming of the king is brilliant news for, for me, for you, and, and for our world. Look at the passage. How is the king coming? To whom is he coming? For whom is he, is he coming? He's coming for you, daughters of Zion, for your benefit, sons of Zion. What's more, he comes on a donkey. You see, um, in times of war, kings of the ancient Near East would ride war horses. Alexander the Great had this big black horse named... Oh, somebody would know. Bucephalus? 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 Some, you can ask Scott about it afterwards. Bucephalus is what I want to say. Bucephus. Immaterial. They would ride horses. Um, but King Jesus comes to us on a donkey. A donkey is what a king would ride in times of peace. The battle was already won. Having already conquered the enemies of the people of God, the king comes to God's people no longer warlike, but as one by whom the victory is already won. If you belong to Christ, know that he comes to you. He, he comes as one 
whose wars have already been fought and won on our behalf. Now, we, we may experience obstacles from time to time. We may trip and stumble occasionally. We, we may fall flat on our faces even. But, but, but know that that, is in, that, that that is in no way because our future ultimately is in doubt. Let's take a moment to reflect again even. Um, are there obstacles to your faith? Sin, um, doubt, bad habits, disobedience, a lack of discipline. Um, maybe there are things even that are outside your control. Um, depression, difficult circumstances, disabilities that would come to you and would challenge your faith, set themselves up as a challenge to your faith. Let's take a moment to think about what those things might be, and let's take a moment again then to remind ourselves that in spite of how things might look, in spite of how they might seem or feel, that God's ultimate victory over them on your behalf is not in question. Brothers and sisters, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. So rejoice, daughters of Zion. Rejoice, sons of Zion. Rejoice, children of the Most High God. Um, we've got a couple of minutes. Does anybody have any questions? We good? <laughs> 